One of the great privileges I have is uh, traveling around the world. And I get to meet lots of different people in lots of different places and speak in lots of amazing churches. Not quite as amazing as this, but pretty amazing. You say that to all the churches. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the things that uh, is lovely is uh, the pastor loves to take you out for lunch afterwards. No hint, Andy. Yeah. Uh, no hint. Uh, love to take you out for lunch afterwards. And they normally bring one or two others. And I was uh, preaching down in a church. I preach at regularly in Cape Town in South Africa. And the, I won't say the pastor's name because uh, you'll know why in a minute. But uh, we had, I preached up a storm in the morning. And uh, we jumped in the car with two or three of his key people from the church. And we were driving out for lunch and... They were, a couple of his colleagues said, oh, why haven't you invited so-and-so, the treasurer? Because uh, surely we need him to pay. <laughs> and uh, the pastor said, well, uh, the thing is, he's a disciple of John. And I just chuckled and laughed, and I was thinking, disciple of John? What on earth is he talking about? He's a disciple of John. Anyway, got, had a quiet moment over lunch, and I leant over to the pastor, and I said, you know, he said earlier in the car that the other elder was a disciple of John, and that's why he didn't invite him. What did you mean? He said, oh, he said, we love a couple of bottles of wine with our lunch on a Sunday, and uh, he doesn't drink. He's a disciple of John. <laughs> and he reminded me of this little text, which is my text for this morning. So, so I'm not going to preach about whether you drink or not, Andy. You can relax. <laughs> <clears throat> but I do want to make a point. Luke chapter 7, verses 33 to 34. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So I don't want to talk this morning about whether you partake in wine or not. But what I do want to talk about is whether you're a disciple of John or a disciple of Jesus. And I just want to make three very simple observations about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus rather than a disciple of John. And then I'd like to pray with you, and it's communion today. So it's a lovely way for us to lean into Jesus. And uh, by the time I get there, I'll have thought of a way that we're going to integrate prayer and communion. <laughs> Does that sound okay? Would you like to be prayed for today? I'd like just to get that out on the table at the start, because I've not come here to entertain. I hope I inspire, but I've not come here to entertain. I've come here because I want, and I want you, to have a greater experience of Jesus today. That's what this is all about. Um, it's not entertainment. It's about him. So my first observation is this, that disciples of Jesus are known for what they're for rather than what they're against. Disciples of Jesus are known for what they're for rather than what they're against. Many years ago, I received an invitation to speak at a business conference, and I love any invitation to speak. And I got excited, and I read down the invitation to the subject that asked me to speak on. And they asked me to speak on the subject of networking. Now, I hate networking. I know we're in America, so that's quite a difficult thing to say. It's more popular to say in the UK, but even in America, I hate networking. And I remember speaking to the conference organizer and explaining to him, I love to speak. 
but I hate to network. And I explained to him why I find it disingenuous and manipulative and contrived and self-serving, and I could write a book about it. I have. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, but Matt, you're really into relationships. I said, yeah, but I believe in relationships, authentic, long-term, high-trust relationships. He said, Matt, he said, will you come and speak on that subject? So I agreed. But the problem was I didn't want to become defined by what I'm not. I didn't want to become defined as the guy, the anti-networking guy. It's always bad to be defined by what you're not. I had to work out what I was for. And what I was for was authentic, long-term, high-trust relationships. And I scratched my head and then I had an idea. And I thought, relationology, the art and science of relationships. I ran to my computer, Googled it, couldn't find it, formed the company, trademarked the name, bought the web domain. <laughs> and I'm still running the business today. Still running the business today, but I had to find it But what I was for, not what I was against. And I think one of the challenges for us as the Christian church is often we're known not for what we're for, but for what we're against. You see, disciples, John the Baptist, disciples of John, John the Baptist was a, was a Nazarite. And uh, just let me read you something. Numbers, chapter 6. Yes, there is. Verses 2 to 6. <laughs> Listen to this. If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine. Who wants to drink vinegar made from wine? <clears throat> or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. I mean, this is getting a bit extreme, isn't it? As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine not even the seeds or skins. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must not let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. And it goes on. Nazarites are defined by what they're against or what they're not. And that was John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had a reputation for not eating bread, not drinking wine. So when Jesus appeared, bit of a contrast, bit of a contrast. And I, I personally find that a huge challenge. As a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, am I most known for what I'm for or what I'm against? And coming here to church today or tuning into church today, whichever you're doing, there's a question, isn't there? Do we come with a sense of guilt that our lives don't quite live up to Jesus? Is there an inconsistency within us? And we come today feeling a little bit of a, a hypocrite. We feel uncomfortable in ourselves because there's something that we think inconsistent. But the good news is that it's not about us being perfect. It's about him 
being perfect. And it means that we can come to Christ. We can come together as church. Completely accepted. Because we're not here as disciples of John. We're not here as disciples of John. We're here as disciples of Jesus. Disciples of John were bound by religion, rules, regulation. We're disciples of Jesus who come freely and are accepted unconditionally by him with all our inconsistencies, with all our pain, with all our hurt. My second observation as I reflect on this text is that disciples of Jesus live lives of abundance, not of abstinence. Disciples of Jesus live lives of abundance, not of abstinence. Now, we knew John the Baptist's view. We knew what the Nazarite view was. Don't touch alcohol. Well, all I can say is this, that that Jesus must have been living somewhat of a good time to have been misunderstood for living too much of a good time. Do you not think? There's no smoke without fire. Jesus must have enjoyed a glass or two round the table with his friends. Well, we know he did. Certainly did at weddings. Jesus lived a life of abundance, not a life of abstinence. And it's good for us to remember sometimes that our God is an aesthetic God. That when he created the world, he looked at it and he said, this is really good. He was pleased by the way it looked, by the way it smelled. He was pleased by the colors and the textures and the depth and the height. There was something beautiful in God's sight as he looked out on his creation. We have an aesthetic God. We have a God who enjoys the goodness of his creation. Now, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? If God enjoys the goodness of his creation, then so should we. We are not called to live lives of abstinence. We don't need to walk around looking miserable unless we really are. We don't need to walk around, you know, pretending to be living in utter self-denial and miserable about it. God has called us, yes, to a life of sacrifice. It's a life of sacrifice that's abundant. It's abundant, enjoying the goodness of God, enjoying the goodness of creation, enjoying the goodness of community. I took a couple of weeks out recently, and uh, it was a time for me of restoration. I've had some pain recently, and I just took a couple of weeks out, and I, I read a book that talked about beauty and about the restorative power of beauty. And one of the simple things, is, I mean, it just struck me, just a very simple little anecdote, that actually, why do we send flowers to people that are unwell? Because beauty is restorative. It is, isn't it? And I was, uh, I was in 
I was, I won't say where I was, I was walking on a beach somewhere. And it wasn't particularly sunny, wasn't hot. The wind was blowing. The waves were crashing. This is somewhere Mediterranean. The waves were crashing. But you know what? As I walked along that beach, I can't sing. Maybe you heard me if you were sat over there earlier. I can't sing. I love to sing, but I can't sing. As I walked along that beach, I, I put my headphones on. and I put on some music. And I sung as loud as I could sing to God. And I found it so restorative just to be in creation like that. Other moments on this little trip, I, I took and I, I just found some sunshine, the shade and sunshine, and I found some sunshine, and I just sat in the sunshine, and what did I do? I did nothing. I, did no, I just enjoyed the heat of the sun, the warmth of the sun. It was so restorative. There is so much beauty in God's creation for us to enjoy. And I know we can have a sermon on materialism, you know, what you're against. But actually, I think we should hear a little bit more about the beauty of God's creation and its power to restore us and its power for for us to find joy in it, to eat and drink and be merry. Jesus did. We're not bound by rules. We're bound by freedom. (laughs) I love, and perhaps for another day, but just briefly, I love to talk about the will of God. I don't know if you ever find the will of God a bit of a mystery. Anybody else? Yeah, one or two others, and the rest of you are nodding, and one or two are too shy to say, but yeah, there's more hands going up. Okay. Well, let me just say this, that um, there are two pictures for me of the will of God. One is of the the tightrope. And uh, we live our lives in slightly nervously, thinking we've got to stay on the track. We've got to stay very careful. Because if we, if we turn the wrong way, disaster will strike and my destiny will be ended. And I'll be of no use to God. Some people I meet live in that kind of fear about God's will. And you know what? Often it leads them to a place of decision paralysis where they're so concerned about making the wrong decision, they make no decision. It means they live a life of complete safety. They never take risks. They never do anything slightly on the edge because they're so concerned not to make a mistake because the worst thing that can happen is to make a mistake. It might ruin everything. That's one view of the will of God. You can probably guess it's not mine. (laughs) The other view of the will of God, I've not come across any tightropes in the Bible, but uh, the other view of the will of God, I believe, is a little bit more biblical. And it's the picture of the Garden of Eden. And the freedom God gave Adam and Eve to enjoy the Garden of Eden. Come back to beauty again. And they were free. All God said was, enjoy it all, but just not that one tree there. Enjoy everything else, but not that one. They had so much freedom, so much choice. God didn't say to them, look, guys, you can only eat from one tree. Don't touch or enjoy anything else. This isn't about restriction. This is about freedom. 
I mean, we're in Florida, aren't we? I mean, theme parks. I mean, theme parks are great, fun places. My, when I told my kids I was coming to Florida, they wanted to come with me. You know, theme parks are great. You know, there's so much choice. You can run and enjoy and try stuff. And, and there's one or two little gates and little fences. You're not meant to be, and they're there to protect you and keep you from harm. But there's so much to enjoy. It's a great picture of the will of God. The will of God actually is quite permissive and freeing. And as soon as you think, actually, well, you know, living a life of abundance rather than abstinence, surely there are some limits. Yes, there are. There are, but there's more freedom than we think. Because we're so concerned and in fear of making a mistake. And I would just encourage you as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, if your heart is for Jesus and you have the mind of Christ, do whatever you like. Love God and do what you like. You have freedom. Make some mistakes. Take some risks. Do something you've never done before. Sometimes we only do things that we think we can do because we don't want to fail. Why not do some things that, that we can only succeed at if God's with us? Isn't that great? It's exciting, isn't it? And this is the life of, of abundance and freedom that I believe as disciples of Jesus, rather than as disciples of John, that we are called to. So the first thing is this. Disciples of Jesus are known for what they're for, not for what they're against. We're called to a life of freedom, of no condemnation, of forgiveness, of acceptance, of unconditional love. Secondly, as disciples of Jesus, we're called to a life of abundance, not abstinence. We're not defined by what we don't do. We're defined by the, the joy and the, the energy and the, the kingdom and the love that we're called to live in. And the third and final thing you'll be pleased to know is that disciples of Jesus transform the world. Disciples of John withdraw from the world. Disciples of Jesus engage and transform the world around them. They don't withdraw from the world in fear and trepidation. But it's God, you see, not remaining distant and far off, but Jesus, God becoming real through Jesus and living amongst us. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news. That our God is not like so distant from us that we're left wondering. But we see in Jesus what God is like, what God looks like, what the sort of things that God says, what breaks his heart, what fills him with joy we see in the person of Jesus. Now, I don't embarrass him, but I went to the little Castlebury uh, Earth Fest yesterday with Andy. <laughs> it's like he's a mini celebrity. Have you, have you ever been out with Andy? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> I've been with a mini celebrity. Everybody wants to say Hello. Everybody, and not talking about churchy people, talking about police officers and local government people and business people and anybody. 
And then we went to the police station. And, oh, no, so I'd be very embarrassed. I'm slightly embarrassed for him. But went to the police station, and he's, he's got a Citizen of the Year thing. Isn't that amazing? See, because disciples of Jesus engage and transform the world around them while they withdraw being overly concerned about their holiness. True holiness can only be really seen in amongst, not out and withdrawn. And Jesus said at the end of, at the, end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21, you know, as the Father has sent me into the neighbourhood to move in next door, now I send you. You know, don't do what I say, do what I've done. That's his invitation to us, isn't it? Just as I moved into the neighbourhood and engaged and transformed and didn't dist- actually grew in intimacy rather than distance, that's exactly what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. I run this little charity that Andy mentioned, Neighbour. It's simple. I'd love to tell you a couple of stories before I pray and finish. Um, uh, Australia is one of the countries that Neighbour works in, and there's an amazing project there. We love finding church community projects and puffing them up and helping them grow. And in Australia, tragically, one woman a week is killed on average. Did you know that? Not by a stranger, by their partner or former partner. I don't know what the stats are here. Perhaps somebody can tell me afterwards. But uh, it's, yeah, let me not comment. Let's find out. And the police get a call every three minutes about a domestic violence issue. And there are lots of great works going on working with victims of domestic violence. Amazing work. But we found this church in Queensland who weren't actually working with the victims, they were working with the perpetrators to actually get to the root cause of domestic violence. And both men and women commit domestic violence. And the way this church approached it was they said... um, because nobody's going to come along to your church program. If you're hitting your husband or your wife, you can imagine Andy standing here next week. If you're hitting your husband and wife, um, you know, come along. We've got a special group on Thursday night. Put your name on the board. <laughs> Everybody will see it. Jimmy, it's not good. Nobody's going to come along, are they? But instead, they say, if you feel your anger is beginning to damage your relationships, we'd love to do some stuff together. And so they approach addressing domestic violence through anger management. And then from there, they're able to deal with all the issues. And we took this project and we helped them replicate it in 30 churches across Australia. It's part of what Neighbour does. We find great work and we help replicate it. And I'm telling the story as I travel around the world because I think, well, it's the best project in its class that I've seen anywhere in the world. And I think what they do in Australia could work here in the United States or could work in South Africa or could work in the other places where I go. So I'm telling the story because it's an inspiring story about the, the impact of the local church, but also to plant the seed. Maybe, maybe here, maybe there. We also help measure the impact of what the church does, the good news that it is that it makes in the community. In New York City, recently, we completed one of our impact audits. And despite the fact that during the pandemic, church attendance decreased by 30 to 50%, its work in the community increased by 49%. Isn't that phenomenal? Sometimes we need to measure the degree to which we're good news to help others understand the value of what the church does in the community. 
But this is the work of neighbor around the world because we are passionate about disciples of Jesus engaging and transforming rather than withdrawing. And so those are my three observations this morning that I wanted to share with you. Those disciples of Jesus rather than disciples of John, we're known for what we're for, not for what we're against. Secondly, we're called to live lives of abundance rather than abstinence. And as disciples of Jesus, we're called to transform rather than withdraw. And I just want to encourage you in following Jesus, because we all need encouragement in following Jesus, don't we? We all need encouragement. And I just wanted to come here today and tell you a few stories, share some of my thoughts with you, and encourage you to follow Jesus with all your, with all our imperfections, with all our pain, with all our baggage, with all our history, with all that we're wrestling with right now. He wants us all, all of us, and all of who we are. We don't need to do anything before we can approach him. We don't need to sort ourselves out before we can lean into Jesus or be part of this church. As the church I am part of the leadership of in London, we always say this is a place for hurting, broken people whose lives are not sorted, but we know one whom we're living for, who is perfect. It's not that we're better than anybody else. We're just better off than other people because of him.